Let me emphasize that this is hard, this topic today, but I want to try and crystallize the heart of what Jesus is saying. He is saying that he is a very different kind of king. And so because he's a different kind of king, he's calling us to a very different kind of way to confront evil in our world. And the summary is, we should not take revenge. Uh, but more than that, there is a better way, <clears throat> pardon me, there is a better way of responding to evil that is done to us, but that better way is costly, and it is enormously, as we were seeing in the videos, it is enormously countercultural. Now, today of all days, I need to say that this passage is not about war. And so if, you're, if we're looking for a, a good way to understand war and what happens in war, this passage is only going to be of limited use to us. Uh, there is a Christian just war tradition uh, that has some very wonderful and compelling and strong things to say about when a war is just or is not just. And actually the heart of that just war tradition is built around that very simple phrase, love your neighbor. Uh, but the just war tradition uh, wants to help us love both uh, the wronged neighbor, the person who is suffering evil, and our bullying neighbor. So in contemporary uh, thinking, we want to love Ukraine and think, how do we stand with and love the people of Ukraine? But we also want to love our neighbor, Russia. Now, we're going to do those two things in very different ways. And the majority of the Christian war, just war tradition, would say that it's absolutely right to use force to resist evil. But that doesn't mean that we hate the people who are doing the evil or that we damn them. Uh, but that is not, in a sense, that's not the heart of what this passage is about. Uh, this passage is much more about personal uh, relationships. And Jesus starts the section, uh, so often as he does, by quoting. And he quotes an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this is sometimes uh, summarized as the lex talionis, which is a Latin phrase, lex talionis, which means the law of just retribution. Now, an eye for an eye, <coughs> pardon me, sometimes <coughs> gets a bad press. <coughs> Excuse me. An eye for an eye is thought of as brutal or bloodthirsty. But in fact, it wasn't. Uh, and it's just worth spending a couple of minutes thinking about it. An eye for an eye, which is there in the Old Testament, is legal advice for the court. It's not advice for private relationships. Uh, so that this idea, an eye for an eye, is expressly designed to stop people taking matters into their own hands. So it's, it, was, it was a brilliant bit of law in the society in which it was born, because it was saying, if you have a feud with someone, you can't just take it into your hands. Uh, 
You have to submit uh, to what the court says. Secondly, an eye for an eye limits revenge. Its purpose, which is brilliant, is to avoid conflict escalating, which of course it always does. So you know the idea, and a thousand films and plays and books are launched on this. You look at my sister, I beat you up, you cut my hand off, I murder your father, and so the conflict escalates. An eye for an eye is a principle to limit revenge. Uh, because ren uh, revenge, uh, kind of infused with anger, will so often escalate a situation. Thirdly, an eye for an eye is about equality. My eye is worth the same as your eye. Or more importantly, the king's eye is worth as much as my eye. So if you're rich and famous and wonderful and powerful, you can't claim more than someone who is poorer. An eye for an eye was always understood metaphorically. It was never actually about gouging out eyes or knocking out teeth. It was a guide. It was a guide to fair compensation, as you can see if you read Exodus at 21. So Jesus quotes eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. It's there in the Old Testament. It had this purpose, practical, real, of limiting revenge. In Leviticus 19, we though read, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's fascinating that one of the original uses of love your neighbor is right alongside this command not to take revenge or bear a grudge. So, as with other Sermon on the Mount material, Jesus is calling us as his people, the people that say that he is our king, he is calling us back to God's prior and perfect will, which is don't take personal revenge. But you can see how a sensible law, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, a sensible law about appropriate retribution, how that can become a charter for personal revenge. If someone hurts me, then I have the right to hurt them back. I won't ask for hands up, but every single person here has wanted to hurt someone who has hurt them. And so the question is, what do we do in that situation? Jesus then gives four examples of what he's talking about, and we're going to spend the rest of the, our time looking at what he meant and how, if possible, we might live this out. And he summarizes it in Matthew 5:39: don't resist an evil person. Now, all four examples that Jesus gives feature someone who is trying to cheat, hurt, or humiliate us. What they're doing is that they are acting with evil intent towards us. So Jesus is being very realistic about our human experience. Jesus does not, repeat, does not call us passively to surrender to evil behavior. And yet this is how Jesus is often misrepresented. Nietzsche mocks Jesus for his weakness, or what he called his slave morality. Jesus does not call us 
to surrender to such evil. Jesus does call us to take an active initiative to overcome evil with good. And if possible, to seek the redemption of the person who wants to hurt us. Now let's focus on the first and ever since Will Smith, arguably most famous of Jesus' four examples. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Uh, now just bear with me, just turn to the person next to you or near you, okay? Now assuming that you are right-handed, work out how to slap them on the right cheek. Okay, so don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> just, just work, work it out like in your mind. If you're right-handed, how are you going to slap them on their right cheek? Have you, have you do it? I mean, if it's your own husband or wife, permission to have a go. You can only do it by what? Using the back of your hands. So I can only, James, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so to hit him on the right cheek, I've got to hit him like that. So already, even in our culture, to backhandedly slap someone like that is designed not primarily to cause them physical pain, but to belittle them and humiliate them or to communicate our disdain of them. Now, imagine that you're the slapper. You're the person that has just slapped someone in that way. And think to yourself, what would happen if the person that you so high-handedly slapped with the back of your hand, what if they refound their focus and breathed out and slowly turned their left cheek to you? What are they saying to you in that moment? Um, um, how do you react when you've just done this to them? Here's, I think, what is being said in that moment. They are saying, I am not going to hit you back. I am not going to pay you back tit for tat revenge. You slap me, I slap you. They are saying, we are not going down that path. But there's a lot more going on. By offering you the chance to slap them again, a second time, they are helping you see exactly what you've done. They're helping expose how cruel and disdainful, how desirous of their humiliation they have been. Thirdly, they have totally turned the tables on you. You meant the original slap to humiliate them or belittle them or intimidate them. And yet now, by offering their left cheek, they are taking control of the situation. And it's rather unsettling. It might infuriate you further as the slapper because they've neither curled up in a ball on the floor, nor have they hit you back. Those are the two responses you might have hoped for. Instead, they've done something courageous, and they've done something strong. But they've also 
left you a way out, the opportunity to see what you've done and to apologize and to make amends. You've hurt them, but they've given you a second chance. Now, when you go home, have a look down at the next three that Jesus lists and work out how Jesus is applying the same principle. It's a call not to take personal revenge, but actively to overcome, overturn evil with good. And the third situation is very poignant. It's about a degrading act of colonial exploitation. A Roman soldier had the right to force a Jewish man or a Jewish woman to carry their stuff for one mile. Now imagine how humiliating that is for people. In fact, it's not that hard to imagine because we can all pretty much imagine a similar thing happening in Europe under Nazi occupation. Jesus says in that situation, turn the tables on the soldier by offering them a second mile. And in doing so, you show that you are not a humiliated slave, but you are setting the agenda. You're not ultimately under their dodgy authority. You are under the authority of a different king, an altogether different king, a king of love and a king of second chances. It is active, defiant, resistance of evil with the hope to overcome it with good. Jesus gives us these word pictures to help us see how not to take personal revenge on the people who hurt us or the people who wish us harm. Let me attempt to summarize what he's saying here. Firstly, we are not to take tit-for-tat revenge. Otherwise, our behavior is dictated by the person who wishes us ill. We can choose in those moments either to be, a, a, a sense, a dumb or passive echo of evil, or we can choose uh, to be a courageous retort of love. Secondly, we are choosing not to descend into a vicious cycle of retribution. We choose the weapons, we choose the unfamiliar, uncomfortable ground of engagement, aiming to overcome, overturn evil with good. We choose the active, courageous resistance of love. Thirdly, we are choosing to offer the chance of redemption to the person who wrongs us. We're choosing to show that we can at least visualize them as a restored friend rather than a sworn enemy. There's no guarantee. The slapper might slap us again. The soldier might make us walk the second mile. But we are showing that we can see them, picture them, visualize them as a restored friend rather than as a sworn enemy. Now, as we finish, if you're thinking that is the most naive, idealistic pile of tosh you've heard from a pulpit in many an age, uh, consider one last thing. 
It's simply that Jesus lived out his words. We need to understand his cross not as an act of passive compliance, as if Jesus simply laid himself out as the universe's doormat. It was not that. It was an active, revolutionary act of love to win us back. Jesus seeing us as friends to be worn back, at one back and restored, rather than as enemies. Today, as we remember so many acts of courage and self-sacrifice on the battlefield, we remember that every single one of us here is caught up, we are caught up in some level in the battle between good and evil. Simply put, with Jesus as our king, with Jesus as our king, we dare, we really do dare to overcome evil with good, to overcome evil with love, and to come overcome evil with courage, and to overcome evil holding on to the hope of redemption for the people that wish us harm. Amen.